We're back again. It's Chase and Josh with Factor Fantasy. That's Chase and I'm Josh. We're here to give you episode five and season three of The Witcher here today. Got some really cool stuff going on. We're kind of getting towards the end of season three of The Witcher, so things are really kind of picking up here. And this is a great setup episode for next week, which Chase will take us through. So really excited to jump into this one here today. Before I do, I'll turn the floor to Chase to say a few words. Yeah, man. Uh, these next two weeks are really getting in the buildup. So uh, really kind of it's 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 I will say it is wild how it kind of feels like we've kind of already kind of flown through this season three of The Witcher and enjoy the ride. You know, we don't know what's going to happen, uh, especially for the future of this show. So hopefully it's not the final act. I uh, better get on those contracts with my boy Henry. <laughs> but with that, I'll let you take it away, Jay Nelly. Let's get it going, man. Malice in the chalice, brother. Cheers. Cheers, buddy. All right, let's go ahead and dive on into this one here. Just to give a quick little recap of where we're at, we kind of closed out episode four with Geralt and Yen walking into the ball, which is prior to the Mage's Conclave, and now moving in here to episode five, it picks up very similar spot but it's it's kind of after it, it's weird because it jumps between a few different timelines this episode does it, it's really cool you know it starts off with the present day but then it flashes back to the the ball but then it goes into perspective from another character so it, it's really kind of cool how this episode played out i really enjoyed it to be honest but to kind of give you an idea guys the episode starts off with Geralt going to cn after that ball and they have really fun little romantic moment they talk about the aphrodisiac and the wine and they're really feeling each other and you know yen starts to you know kind of get in her head a little insecure about how one of the other mages look Geralt tells her to stop and just kisses her and then we kind of get uh, the title sequence it hits after they have that nice little moment together in the present day now the scene opens back up and we go back in time to the beginning of the the ball prior to the conclave and it picks up from last week's closeout with Geralt and Yen walking in with each other. And Yennefer, she's pointing out individuals to Geralt, and she brings them up to speed on each person. Like she kind of tells him who this person is and what their, you know, role almost is as well. <laughs> and they get to the point where they see Stregobor. Remember, this is the whole. They they've come to the conclusion in their heads that Stregobor is the overall overarching bad guy here. They gotta take him out. They think he's the one that's kidnapping these half breed mage students and performing experience on on them so this whole plan is to take down Stregobor so they see him and Geralt almost makes an attack but he gave his word that he would wait because they need the ball to go perfectly and their plan is to, to make sure they've got evidence to throw against him when the conclave begins the next following day now this blonde sorcerer Sabrina she walks up and she's getting a little flirty with Geralt there. She's yeah, she asks him to kiss her hand, he grabs it, and as he was about to, he gets this like vision and she's almost enticing him telepathically, uh, you know, trying to tempt him and Geralt is able able to resist. He's like, Oh, I think uh, Yennefer looks lovely tonight, don't you, Sabrina? Uh, it's funny. And, and even uh, Sabrina was like, Damn, he even means it too. How boring. <laughs> it was so funny, but in any event yeah, we always, the past couple weeks we've been talking about how the music and the songs from the Bards in this season haven't been the best. Uh, I will say I did think the song in this episode was a little bit better than the ones in the past, 
but it's the rival bard, not our boy Yaskier. Our boy Yaskier is still babysitting Cirilla over in the fucking woods. But we got the rival bard, and uh, they start playing. And like I said, to me, I, I wrote down my notes. Like, this is the first song that wasn't too bad this season. Uh, what did you think about this song compared to the other ones? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't bad. It, I mean, I think that's been... You know, and I've actually liked this season pretty much. I mean, of course, it's, it has its flaws, but, I mean, just like we were saying, it's nothing that's astounded me to where I'm like, man, that song was the shit. Like, I always put back in my head, you know, burn, baby, burn, or whatever the fuck that was last season. And, of course, the classic toss a coin to you, Witcher. We haven't had anything iconic like that where I will look back years from now and be like singing that song in my head. Like we haven't had one of those. And I think that's what this season needs as far as just something that's not too important, but you know, has that Witcher touch to it. But yeah, I'll let you take it away, man. I agree with you, dude. Anyways, Geralt bumps into Philippa and he says, Philippa, what a surprise. Catch any mice tonight. And from there, Yennefer, she starts catching up with Vilgefortz and Tissaia. And they tell her that she needs to build bridges with Artorius and Stregobor. Because this whole conclave is to bring everyone together in unity. And all with like a single cause of just coming together. So it's interesting because there's different, I don't want to call them species, but types of characters. Right? There's mages, there's elves, there's half-breeds, there's witchers, there's monsters. There's just so many different things, right? And... So made, and each one has their own like faction. So she's trying to bring the mages together to unite them within their own faction, and so from there, while she's catching up with Tissay and Vilgefortz and talking about how she needs to get on Artorius's and Stregobor's good side if she wants this unity thing to actually take effect, Geralt is approached by Dijkstra, who greets Geralt. And, you know, uh, he it says this something very interesting, because I guess in my mind, I had always assumed that Dijkstra had some level of magical ability, because he had that owl from the previous season. But apparently, Dijkstra's not even a mage. I'm like, what is going on here? He's just what's called the spy master. So I thought my dude Dijkstra was this powerful mage, maybe like a secret, like, badass assassin mage. And it turns out this fucker can't even do magic. But, like, he's got <laughs> some sort of weird connection with this bird, it's almost similar to Game of Thrones where they have the warg, where that guy Orel was able to see inside the eyes of the, the hawk that would fly over and, and take a look at things in the distance. So it was just really weird, man. I I, was, I thought from season two when we introduced this guy, he was a secret powerful sorcerer. And I don't know, maybe it's still like a shock and surprise. Maybe he will be. But this episode, actually really specifically next episode, uh, or I'm sorry, Dijkstra really isn't, as uh, bad, much of a badass as I uh, originally assumed, or so to speak. So, when you heard this and realized that he also was quote unquote a fellow commoner and and doesn't have magical abilities, what did you think? And, and were you surprised? Dude, he's Bran. If Bran was Peter Baelish, <laughs> that's exactly what he is. Like the same thing, man. I thought Dijkstra had like at least some tricks up his sleeve. I'm wondering how he even made it past the interviews to get into wherever he's at. Like, how he got explained to me. I would love someone to explain to me, whether you put it in our comments or wherever this video is posted. Explain to me how Dijkstra was even ever able to be considered for the position he got. Like, I understand, you know, 
maybe he's part of that community and that sort of thing. But to have as high up level of a position that he has, is it just because he like fucking swindled his way to the top? Like Peter Baelish? Like, I don't know, man. What's what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. But I would say more so Varys, because Varys was their spy master in Game of yeah. Thrones, where Peter Baelish was his master of coin. But they have similar quality. He has kind of qualities of each. So uh, it, it's one of those things where... He has connections, maybe very similar to Varys. He went, he came from nothing and and worked his way up to the position that he's got now, and that's why he's so good as a spy master because he can he has connections in all uh, social ladders of the world, like the the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich, and then maybe he's very useful in that regard. Because yeah, like I said, his title is spy master. You know, to be a good spy master, you need to have good intelligence. To so have good intelligence, you need people in a lot of different, you know walks of life so i'm assuming that's how he became who he is in as high of a position but i just was expecting a whole lot more from this guy i don't know about you yeah man i mean uh, uh one thing i will say and i'm not giving anything away here is just like i ex- just like you said i agree 100 percent. i expected more i thought he was gonna be a lot more of a threat to our heroes <laughs> that we look at and you know, and I'm the one that keeps saying every week, like, I wonder, you know, what Dijkstra and Philippa's got going on, which we'll find out later. But point being is, like, I thought he would be a lot more of a threat and have some sort of, like, magical ability or, you know, something going on. And nah, man, he's just an asshole is really all he's got going on. Well, I'll turn it back over to you, Jay Nelly. All right, dude. So uh, at this point, Dijkstra requests to speak with Geralt alone. But the scene at this point cuts back to present day. And Geralt's debriefing with Yen in the room. And she's not surprised because Geralt thinks Dijkstra and Philip are going to be a problem tomorrow. She said, you know, they always kind of were supposed to make it at least fun and interesting in, in Yennefer's words. You know, make it, like, the drama uh, worth their invitation is what she was saying. And then from here, the scene moves back to the ball, and it goes back to Geralt's conversation with Dijkstra, and he says, give us the girl before it's too late. And Geralt just says, no, excuse me. And Dijkstra says, fucking prick. thought that was hilarious. Moving on from there, Geralt walks off and goes up to the balcony. He sees Yennefer, and she's having a conversation with Istrid. And Vilgelforce is up there, and he reminds him that Istrid was Yen's first love, and how we never forget our first love. And Geralt kind of gets annoyed with that, ends up going down and grabs Yennefer and asks her what Eastred said. And she said, now is not the time. And the music starts to hit, and Geralt is required to dance with her. It's kind of expected uh, at, at this party or this ball. And while they're dancing, they're switching partners. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the show Bridgerton, but it's similar to that where they're doing these movements and they're kind of passing each other off to new partners throughout the dance. And while this is happening, Yen is sucking up to Artorias, and Geralt's being harassed by women talking like who spiked the wine and stuff. So it's just a little cool, fun little moment. And at this point, it shows Philippa and Dijkstra, they're worried about Geralt and Yen. They think that Geralt and Yen are going to be the ones to ruin their plans. So right now we see there's plans on a couple different fronts. We got Geralt and Yen's plan over here. Then we got Philippa and Dijkstra's plan over here. And then we got some secret plans that we don't know about yet, like in the back end with some of these mages, or one specifically. In any event, 
And Geralt dances with Triss, and Triss asks about Ciri, and Geralt tells her that Ciri's safe for now, and the dance shifts back to the original partners for the finale. The dance concludes, and because right now we're just seeing it at a very high level. We don't get the in-tune, small details of it just yet, and it, like, like I said, it kind of goes back through a few different viewpoints, and we'll get more in detail. But out of nowhere, it seems, Ishid and Geralt start bickering about Yen, and they... Well, yeah, Geralt accuses Istrid of flirting with Yen and, and trying to adva make advances towards her, and he, he uh, picks up on the cue and says, "Yeah, well, you know, I'm the better man for her." And, and then they start fighting. He's like, "Oh, prove it!" So they start doing a little mini fighting. And while this is happening, we see Yen kind of walk out, like she gets quote unquote annoyed with what's going on here, and walks out of the room. And while this is happening, and everyone's witnessing this fight. Our Todd, which is another person that hasn't really made a big appearance just yet, they uh, he ends up getting drunk and falls over, smashes some glasses of wine, and everyone's now paying attention to him. So that's like the new distraction, and the scene moves back to the present day. We don't really know what all that was about, but now the scene moves back to the present day, and Yennefer commends Geralt on the creative choice of starting a fight as a distraction. And Geralt tells her that he doesn't want to lose her, and that their beautiful night will eventually end, and Yennefer tells him that everything does end. And then the scene cuts back to the ball. They toast to peace, and Taseya says they have Yennefer of Vangerberg to thank, and then we go back to the present day, and they think their plan worked. But now, this is what I'm talking about, we got this switch of perspective, and we go back into essentially the beginning of the episode, but from Geralt's point of view, and we're going to get more in detail of what's been going on in those conversations Geralt was having with everyone to kind of lead us towards the conclusion of this episode. So, we go through Geralt's perspective. We, we hear about the full conversation with Philippa about Rienz and his master. And we hear about the full conversation with Dijkstra about Redania and how Redania is really the only logical choice to, to bring Cyril to and join their side. He's really trying to get Geralt to take a side. He's like, you're going to need to pick a side. And Geralt's like, no, I'm going to do neutrality here. And then it gets to that quote I already mentioned, but not the full, you know, it was, I mentioned it before, but without the full context of where that came from, of, in, of if he saying, hey, speak plainly. And, you know, he said basically to bring Siri to him. And he said, no, excuse me. And he called him a fucking prick again. But <laughs> from there, we continue on. And Shregobor is giving a waiter a hard time as Geralt approaches him. Stregobor brings up Renfrey, and Geralt tells him that he will make Stregobor pay for all that he's done. And Stregobor tells him that he was just ridding the continent of monsters, just like it's Geralt's job to do. And Geralt tells him that they are nothing alike, and Stregobor essentially tells Geralt, well, if we're nothing alike, then show me that we're nothing alike, right? And from there, the scene shifts over to the conversation that Istrid had with Yennefer, and he's actually talking about the artifact, the Book of Monoliths, and how the holder of that can travel through time and space. And I don't know, dude. This shit kind of fucking annoyed me because I hate this this whole uh, this whole idea of time travel and traveling through space and time because we never end up getting any set of rules of how that works, who we can interact with, what changes we can make, how that affects the present day. And so now I'm just like, I, even in my notes, I fucking put a eye roll emoji because I'm just like, oh, we're traveling through space and time now. Whoever holds that book can do that. So we're traveling through space and time. Can we go back? And then how far can we go back? Then how many times can we do it? Like, we never get any set fucking rules on this shit, man. Are you, am I the only one that's tired of this shit? Or are you fucking tired of this traveling through time and space stuff too, bro? Oh, yeah. I, I have a big problem with that. 
Um, side note on that too, you, you know, and, and the reason I make this comparison is because The Witcher really kind of is. I mean, it's kind of like Game of Thrones mixed with Harry Potter in a way. Like you have like the Harry Potter aspect in Game of Thrones and J.K. Rowling said like her biggest mistake she ever felt like she made in the Harry Potter books was experimenting too much with time travel, which I actually liked Prisoner of Azkaban in the way they did the time turner. But my point being is I think part of it too, example like Marvel, I think that's why they've kind of lost their way a bit is they experimented too much with this multiverse and can't really stick to one course. And the issue is with these franchises is it's almost like when they're introducing time travel they don't introduce it with rules it like has no bounds like and we're just left wondering like what can they do with this what can this be done and in a way it kind of makes me annoyed because i feel like it opens the door where then they can always have a cop-out somehow like you can always explain something with a cop-out this way not necessarily to bring like a character back or whatever but Say, for instance, especially like portals, this portal thing has started to even annoy me, too, in this series, because one minute, you know, you're over in Eratusa, the next minute you're at Kira Morin, <laughs> because you just decided you could just walk across the map. Like, it's like shit like that. Like, someone put some rules in place. Uh, I mean, I think one of the greatest things about The Witcher when it first started was... You and well, actually, they mentioned it in passing next week when we'll get into that. But you have strict rules in place, like for instance, don't tap into fucking fire magic. Like this has been a rule since day one. Now we're just throwing out abilities and and things we can do to use spells out of books, and there's no rules involved. Like that's. I don't know. I think that's one of the biggest problems with a soft magic system is it can really open the door to where it's like there's no direction with these systems. And, and I think it causes a lot of conflict in the future. What's your thoughts on that? My thoughts are it's it's always opening up a big can of worms when you talk about t- either going back in time, going forward in time, just time travel in general. And the reason I say that is because like at the end of the day, if you're able to have that ability, what's to stop someone from going back in time? Let's say you stop them from their their uh, goal in that time frame, but then they go back in time again and keep going. Like, at, w- at what point does it stop? At what point can you not go back any further? At what point can you not try to redo all these things? And like, how do you, you know, make how does that make sense to be able to stop it if you're traveling through time in the first place and just bouncing around from different timelines? So that way, like, realistically, how is anyone ever truly? not able to get their plans accomplished because you can if you can travel through time and space you can essentially hit any point in time and let's say someone else can follow you there but what are you going to do just keep bouncing around from fucking everywhere until either you kill the person or their plans go through you know what i mean it just there's no to me it, it makes it very hard to make it make sense for common listeners with this whole time travel thing like you mentioned and i had mentioned as well we need some sort of boundaries and we need some sort of limitations and, and a clear directive of, you know, in time travel, these are the parameters and there's nothing outside those parameters. Because if there's nothing outside the, because if there are no parameters, then essentially anything goes. 
Anything goes. You can go any point in time. I'll stop you in this timeline, but then you bounce over another timeline. If I somehow find a way to get to that timeline, I stop you there. You just go to another one until, like, you know, it's just, it, there's no stopping it. And it doesn't make any sense to me. So it's just, I, I don't love the idea of having this introduced, and especially the way that it looks like it's going to be introduced. The Book of Monoliths, we already got the monolith thing last season where these things would just pop up and they're almost portals and monsters are coming through them and you know we already somewhat solved a few of those things and now we've got book of monoliths which gives us the power and ability to ta travel through time and space and you know it, it just makes it hard to follow it makes it hard to understand and there's never been a series of, of fantasy fiction or really any piece of work at all fiction or non-fiction that's made time travel make sense to me in any sort of way because every time I think about time travel I think about what are the limitations and there's never any clear-cut answers on that I don't know what do you think before yeah I don't want to get us too off topic and I'll make this quick but I got to throw the great debate card because this uh, brings up a big debate and I don't want to get us too off topic but my debate for you is and I, I have a thought on this do you think time travel should just be plain old gotten rid of like avoided in the magic uh you know the fantasy franchise in general just stay away from it or do you think we should have it uh with limitations or do you think they should be able to do whatever they want what are your thoughts on time travel like do you think fantasy fiction would be better off and better going forward if they just got rid of all time travel uh, thoughts and you know subjects on time travel in general in fantasy fiction it would definitely make it easier and more logical to follow and I understand that fantasy fiction is supposed to be illogical and, and the impossible is supposed to happen and that's what makes the genre fun is things that you don't think about or things that really can't happen in the real world happening in this fantasy world so I get the allure of it but I've always heard the quote that if you can't explain it to a six-year-old you don't know it well enough yourself and if you don't know it well enough yourself why are you bringing it into your pieces of literature or works of art whatever that may be and that's that's my biggest problem with it because like we were just talking about and you just mentioned as well we don't have a rule limitations you know what would be really cool and what I would really enjoy if you guys ever watched those or read the Aragon books and you flip all the way back to the very end pages that kind of have, they're not, it's like past the epilogue and there's other stuff there. It, it gives you a breakdown of the ancient language and, and tells you words and what they mean and stuff. If you can give me, like, let's say a chapter at the very, very end that lists out the rules of time travel, what's able to be done, what's not able to be done, and really define the lines of it. I'm okay with it. If I can understand it, I'm like, okay, well, they can go back in time, but they can't do this. Okay, I, I can follow that a little bit easier. So if you can really kind of frame, out, like frame time travel in a way that uh, have strict limitations, this is what can be done, this is what can't be done, then by all means, let's try it out. But if you can't and you're not willing to do that, stay the fuck away from it, man. Like, just stay away from it because you're going you're gonna to end up ruining something good because now the questions are going to be, well, what happens if they went back in time again and did this instead instead of just having it happen once and getting stopped? Like, you know, it, it just opens up a can of worms of where 
people are going to be left with questions of, well, if time travel really exists, how did the next guy up who, you know, the, let's say the bad guy is defeated. Well, what about his like first lieutenant? How do, how come he doesn't go back in time and bring that guy back to life or like stop him from being killed and bring him back to the future? Like, you know what I mean? At what point do we fucking stop? You know? So that's my thing. We get these lines like, Hey, you know, if someone passed away, if someone died in this, they cannot be brought back when you go back in time. It's like, you know, you can't stop death from happening if it's already happened. Just like, give me some fucking limitations. Give me some guidelines here and we're good. But you can't do that. Stay the fuck away from it. Those are my thoughts. What are yours? Yeah, I agree 100%. And it's, uh, I have a big thought that comes to my mind because I think exactly what you said is, in a way, so Avengers Endgame, one can argue, was one of the most successful Avengers movies of all time. But I think why they've kind of lost their way towards the future is because they have no rules and limitations on this shit. Like, it started off really cool, and they had to figure out some wild way to beat Thanos after they got pretty much fucking wiped out, right? Well, there was one small quote in the film. Remember the original Gamora, which, here we go, or again, you know, (laughs) making up our own rules, right, and different versions and shit. The original Gamora, also Black Widow. Like, yeah, they made a prequel for her. But remember what uh, Jeremy Renner as Hawkeye said. He said, the guy with the red face and the hood, he said she can't come back. If you got a problem, you can go go take your hammer and you can go up to outer space and you go talk to him about it because he said she can't come back. And the reason that worked for that one film is because she couldn't come back. If we started doing Black Widow films in the future and said it's another version, like this whole, like even like this whole like Gamora thing, at least when she came back in Guardians 3 that we talked about this year, it wasn't the same Gamora. You didn't have like the same relationship with Star-Lord and stuff. That's where that kind of worked. But, like, for instance, if you were just bringing Black Widow back all the time and making up your own rules, it just comes into cop-outs at that point. And then you have no limitations whatsoever. And I think, really, that's a big problem with the whole Marvel universe right now is they've spiraled out of control without having limitations on this whole multiverse. It could have been fantastic, I think, if they had established rules in the beginning. It could have been a really awesome concept. Like, we saw that with Loki Season 1, how cool it was. And the reason it was so cool was because they explained every little detail in Loki Season 1. Like, you know, they had, like, the time force that made sure certain things couldn't go off the timeline and that sort of thing. But then, you know, you started, you know, jumping to all these different other films that, you know, really you couldn't really half make sense of why this happened and that happened and it just expanded out and part of that reason i think is because of the rules i'll bring up one uh you know and i know they have a play on this book but we always talk about harry potter because that's one of our big franchises here cursed child sucked in my opinion and not afraid to get into it i'm not gonna like actually get into it but the reason i think it sucks is because if you actually go take a look at that they tried to say oh they used like the time turner to go back into the triwizard tournament and all this shit happened stay the fuck away from that (laughs) like one it's a classic so you can't really mess with that but if you're gonna do a sequel don't go make some fucking sequel based on time travel so 
my thoughts is I agree 100%. It could, time travel could be fine and maybe work well. Like, I think the one reason it did work in Prisoner of Azkaban is because, yeah, it didn't explain a lot of rules, but they were only doing so much with it, too. Like, so if you're not going to explain a lot of rules, make it be a very small thing, not a very big thing. But yeah, I agree 100%. I think either take it out of, my opinion is take it out of fantasy fiction altogether because it leads into more problems than not. Or if you're going to have it in there, you need to establish a strict set of rules or use it for something small. With that, I'll let you take it away, Jay Nelly. Yeah, before hopping back in, just one last piece on this. It's just one of those things about time travel, too, is that it really dilutes the impact of characters' deaths. Because at this point, you're like, oh, did they really die? Are they going to bring them back next week because, you know, the time travel thing, and now it's a newer version of them or whatever. So what it really does, it it really lessens the impact of character deaths. I mean, some of my favorite moments in cinematic history are the deaths of important characters and things that hit me like, whoa. You know, and to know that at any point in time we have this ability to just go back and stop that from happening or grab another version of that same person. It's like, okay, well, then them, they, like, them being dead doesn't really matter and it really lessens the impact. You know, I think that's one of the beautiful things about this stuff is, you know, getting caught by surprise. Like, shit, can you imagine the Harry Potter series? Like, you just mentioned since we're talking about it, like all the big main characters that die Dumbledore, Sirius Black, fucking. You know, everybody, like in there, Harry's parents, <laughs> just everyone that's died in Cedric Diggory, everyone that's died in Harry Potter, all of a sudden we can bring back because we can go back in time with these time turners. That's another thing, too. Why the fuck do we go back in the time turners? <laughs> like, you know, like, oh, we, the Ministry of Magic destroyed them all after the Department of Mysteries debacle. It's just one of those silly things that. How, like, why did no one, if these time turners existed, why did no one go back in time and stop Voldemort from rising to power? Why didn't someone go back in time and kill him while he was in school, knowing what he was going to become? You know, there's just so many different things you can do. You, know, you just go down so many different avenues of, of ways you can really fuck up a whole series of shit that you created that people really enjoy. The easiest way to fuck it up is introduce time travel because then people can poke holes in everything from there because we can just be like, well, what if we went there? 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 Like, you know, so I'm not going to beat a dead horse. But at the end of the day, it's easier and safer to stay away from time travel if you want to get, you know, fancy and dig into it, really, like, set the boundaries early. And I would even say, make, like I said, I think a a list of rules, even if someone comes across, what I would do if I were to write a, a fancy fiction series right now here today and I wanted to introduce time travel, what I would do is maybe in the very, one of the very first chapters, you know, if I knew that it was going to have time travel related to it, I would have someone find a book somewhere, and in that book it explained exactly what that time travel looked like, and someone who's been in it before, and like maybe a master or a monk who has studied the ins and outs of it to a T, and maybe the book was made in like the 1400s, the 14th century, and someone in today's present day found it, and you know, just has these guidelines, and you already know right away, before we even, even have to think about going into time travel three or so books down the road, you already know it exists, number one. And number two, you have a decent idea of what that could look like if I decide to dive into that later on in the series. That's the way I would do it if I was going to do it. But man, I, I tell you, there's like if, I just don't see, I don't see the point other than the fact that it's something new that people haven't tapped into so much. The thing is that it can cause a lot of, of plot holes down the way. But in any event, I'm going to dive back into where we are here before we get any further off topic on that end. <laughs> go for it. Because we can go all day on that shit. 
But uh, yeah, so at this point, to dive back into where we were, Yennefer tells Eastred that someone has to get the Book of Monoliths before Stregobor uses it. And Geralt goes up to Yen and she quickly debriefs him before the dance starts. Again, keep in mind, we're back going through all this again, but through Geralt's perspective, we're starting to see the details of these conversations where we didn't, we only saw, like I said, a high level, you know, almost like a uh, spectator's perspective prior to this. Now, Geralt tells Yen that he's going to create a distraction so she can slip away and that the code word he's going to use will be truce, which makes sense, you know, from when we saw prior where they stopped their little fight because, oh, well, I don't want to ruin this big moment, so how about we call it truce? We hear that truce thing there, and so we get, get an idea of what that is. So in any event, from here, Geralt grabs Istra to the side and says, follow my lead, and Istra does help with the distraction. We get that whole fight scene, but we have more context behind it now. Uh... Yennefer slips away into Stregobor's room. She attempts to unlock the vault, and when she gets there, there's this metal moth thing that flies out of the center, and, and I don't know why Yennefer just let that thing go away. Like, why would you not just, like, destroy it? Like, you have magic, you have all this ability, and you see, obviously, it was in the lock. You don't think it had any role to play? Like, were you just gonna sit there and stare at it? Let it leave the room? No, use your magic, bind it, trap it in like a sphere, do something, but don't just let it fly out the fucking room. <laughs> I don't know, dude. In any event, this thing, this metal moth flies out the damn room. She's able to unlock the vault, uh, but before we kind of get an idea of what's in the vault, the scene moves back to the quote-unquote fight, and Geralt is walking Easter through the process, and that metal moth I was just mentioning, it lands on Stregobor's shoulder, which is a signal for him to go see who's in his vault and run imaging through his shit. So the scene goes back to Yennefer as she's going through the vault, and she picks up a couple different things in there, and each one has a, a memory of Stregobor and these kids in Eratusa that are, are half-breeds, like half-elf, half-human. And it, it makes it really look like Stregobor is the person kidnapping them. Like, oh, you don't belong here. And then it has all these items of them with the memories attached to it. And... Like well, she finds the, all these memories and objects, and it's it's essentially proof in her mind of him kidnapping the half breed mage students that have been going missing that Triss has been like freaking out about and trying to warn people for the longest, right? So, Shagabor gets there, and before she can finish up uh, and close the vault and, and get out of there, he shows up right behind her and accuses her of not actually wanting the mages to come together in unity, but this was her plan the whole time was to try to make a make a move on him, like to, to take him down. And you can see that he's about to attack her, but Geralt walks in, and they accuse him, and together they, they have they start bringing up all these these points and, and these uh, ev the evidence that they've compiled. And eventually, it's not even just Yennefer and Geralt, all the rest of the important mages show what Bilgefords, Tissaia, Triss, Istrid, Artorius, like all of them show up in this room and it makes it look real bad for Shagobor and it gets to the point where uh, Istrid finds the Book of Monoliths behind the vault in like a secret compartment, pulls that out and uh, like at this point they agree to hold Shagobor till the conclave is over and he's going to be, um, I don't know if it, on trial is the right word, but they're going to take a real big look and investigate him going forward and Dragobor looks to Artorius to back him up, because it's always been those two, right? Kind of how it's been to say in Vilgefortz on one end, it's always been Stregobor and Artorius on the other end, and Artorius says he can't even back him up in this, in this. it looks really bad, so even Artorius agrees to have him held, and that they're gonna, they're gonna go do a full investigation. 
From here, they return to the ball, and Geralt tells Yennefer for the first time out loud that he loves her. And it's funny because uh, Yennefer tells me, you've thought this before, but this is the first time you've actually ever said it. So that was really important. And you start to see the real the emotions coming through, which if we remember what the Witchers were created to be. They were not supposed to have any sort of emotion. So it shows his character development from season one to two to three and how it's built up. And now he's, these emotions and display of affection, they're coming out of him naturally and, and of his own accord. So it really kind of shows how Geralt has grown as a character throughout the series and is able to tell Yennefer that he loves her. And after that, the scene comes back to the present in the, in the room afterwards of Yennefer telling Geralt of her side conversation with Philippa. So we got a little bit of the Geralt's perspective on things. Now we're diving back in to Yennefer's perspective of the side conversation she had with Philippa. And Philippa basically tells her that the Brotherhood isn't going to last long and the continent doesn't give away uh, like the con- like on the continent and she doesn't give away their whole plan so to speak but she tells her that some- something's coming and it- you almost have to choose a side in a way it- it's just one of those things that like it- but at the very end even though the whole plan's not divulged you can see they have their own motives and they are planning something so just like Geralt and Yennefer were planning something you can see Philippa is planning something and, and honestly one of the best like, uh, evidences of this and the best like way of proof I can show is when Yennefer thanks her and uses the same words that she's been saying to everyone that she's been greeting like thank you for coming it means everything as she's walking away Philippa under her breath says tonight means everything to us as well so it's pretty kind of it's kind of cool in that sense of that coming full circle and then from there it cuts back to the present day of Geralt and Yen in that room and Geralt tells Yen about his conversation with Vilgefortz and that's where Vilgefortz is. They're up on that balcony top, and Vilgefortz is trying to find common ground with Geralt, and it is explaining their similarities and and how they they have a lot of parallels in their lives. And Geralt, and he, what he's really wanting to do is he wants to recruit Geralt to join the mages in the battles to come. But that that's the problem. He said the words "battles to come," and why that's a problem is that the whole point of this conclave is that they're supposed to be bringing peace and unity. They're going to come together in peace. So he was never planning on peace if he knows there's battles to come. So he fucked up by saying those words. And that's when they, they actually, the, that, the brain like clicks into gear there for Geralt and Yennefer because the scene goes back to the present. And they talk about how it's weird that Vilgefort said that when we know that the whole point of this conclave is to bring peace. And to close up here, they start going through this stuff in Vilgefortz's room, and, and they're processing, like, well, there's the Scarlet Ammonite that's only found in Redania is in Vilgefortz's room. The painting matches, like, his favorite painting matches the type of portal that attacked Yen. And all these other things, and the whole thing is coming together. The pieces of the puzzle are fitting to where it's adding up to Vilgefortz being the actual overall bad guy and not Stregobor. And Yennefer, at this, in this point, she's freaking out. She's like, fuck, I gotta find Taseya, because she thinks Taseya's in trouble, because Taseya and Vogelforts have had this love affair going on for the past two seasons, like this one and the last season. And she thinks that uh, Taseya could be in danger, or might not be, like, know what's going on at the very least. And Geralt's walking out of the room, 
and as he's walking out of the room to investigate and kind of go along the way and we hear commotion and dude the similarities between this and something else i'm got to bring up is going to be hilarious because like i think that i'm not saying they took it scene for scene but i'll tell you there is a lot of similarities and i'll bring up just a second but Geralt walks out of the room to investigate and out of nowhere Dijkstra slickly comes out behind the pillar pulls his dagger up to Geralt's throat and says you should have chosen a side witcher and that's where the episode ends with the the dagger from Dijkstra to Geralt's throat and and Dijkstra saying you should have chosen a side witcher and to me this was fucking hella similar to Game of Thrones when Peter Baelish pulled his dagger on Ned Stark and said, I did warn you not to trust me while all the commotion's going on and his people are getting killed all around him. I tell you what, man, like, I don't know if they could get, like, get hit for some copyright shit on that, but that was almost as close to that scene as you could get without being copywritten. So before we dive into like the takeaways and stuff, I want to get your thoughts on that final scene. Did you also see the similarities and what did you think about it? Yeah, I, I knew exactly what you were about to say. That's exactly what I was saying. I mean, it, it, was, it was pretty... I mean, maybe there was, like... I mean, I guess you can say the setting was different, but, dude, that was dead. I think that was, like, word for word, dude, what he fucking said. Like, I think that was, like... Because I caught that, too. Then I, I didn't write it in my notes or anything. I just, like, let it go. But there's a reason I said earlier in this episode, I said The Witcher is basically Harry Potter in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Dude, that was, yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. I mean, I was just like, oh. <laughs> like, clearly, someone's taking notes, and you have, like, a, uh, it's interesting, too, because you have this, like, Cirilla becoming Arya Stark <laughs> kind of thing. So, I don't know, man. You got Daddy Ned that happens to still be alive right now. And then you have Arya. And now you have... Uh, it's interesting. What's funny is... <laughs> I'm not going to give anything away for next episode. But these mages... Yin reminds me of Danny a little bit. <laughs> so just saying that, you know, like Yin and maybe Taseya a little bit later on. I don't know. It's just giving me very much uh if you had Ned, Arya, and Danny. I, I don't know. I don't think maybe I guess maybe Geralt's showing a little bit of the Jon Snow vibes recently. I don't, I don't know, man, but yeah, I 100% agree with you on that. Yeah, and it's weird, too, because I also even think about it for the quote-unquote Game of Thrones villains. Dijkstra really shows uh, characteristics of Peter Baelish and also Varys. You can see a multitude of characters in, in each of these uh, Witcher characters where you would say you could draw parallels between Ciri and Arya. You could draw parallels between Geralt and Jon Snow. You can draw parallels between Yennefer. I guess you can, you know, draw that between Yennefer and Danny. I that one's tough for me because uh it just there's more yeah. magic there. But on top but you know, not this, but even if we push that to the side and say there's no real direct Danny comparison, I would say to say it's very similar to the Red Woman, like Melisandre, especially yeah. in the very beginning yeah. parts of The Witcher, you know what I mean? So we have all these similarities and parallels and it's it is interesting. And so I'm I'm curious if if George R. R. Martin took any sort of 
an influence from the Witcher novels or, or video games. Because if I'm not mistaken, I think the Witcher novels were made well before the Game of Thrones novels. Um, I never read them. I haven't read them. I know Chase has them at his house, the, uh, the Witcher books. But I, I'm not exactly sure what year those were written. So it's like hard to say who took what from whom. But I will say, obviously, the Game of Thrones TV series came out well before the Witcher TV series. And that it's very it's it's easy to see the similarities in the shows you know like i said yeah the direct quotage wasn't exact when he when Deeksha pulled the dagger on Geralt and said you should have chosen a side witcher but peter Dallas did the same thing to ned stark he said i did warn you not to trust me it's essentially the same fucking thing like i i, I don't understand how they can get away with that uh, kind of part of me what i want to do is I almost want to split the two scenes and put them up on, on one of our social sites so you can see them side by side uh, of what of how that happened in, in The Witcher and how that happened in Game of Thrones and really see the similarities on that. And, you know, as long as that's kosher, I might actually put that together and, and see how that lines up. But in any event, man, I'll go ahead and pass it over to you. Uh, I'm going to give you a chance to speak on that. And then after that, I also want you to give your takeaways on the episode as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. I was going <clears> to... <throat> I looked up the release date there. I mean, it's late 80s, early 90s is when all of them were released. So, like, this one, Time of Contempt, that it's based on, of course. I mean, and, and ironically, I actually traded in my Witcher books because I'm going to try to get the hardcovers at some point because the hardcovers are phenomenal. Whereas they had, like, this video game cover on them that Barnes & Noble or someone decided to do, and it had nothing to do with the books. So I was like, got to give, you know, credit to the author where credit's due. <laughs> Anyways, but, yeah, they were written early 90s, late 80s. Like, Time of Contempt was one of the later ones, and it was saying that it came out, just to make sure I have the exact date right for all our fans that will hold me to it, 1995 it was published in poland was when this one came out and this is like the fourth or fifth book so i'm i'm not exactly sure jay nelly can you look up when game of thrones the original one was published i know it was somewhere around there but i still think these books were published first but it's pretty close yeah. so just looking it up real quick the original game of thrones novel was published on well it was released on august 1st 1996 so okay a, a, a so whole year later still these are first right yep yeah so yeah that's interesting it, it makes me you know we talk about this a lot on this show actually because there's clear evidence too. game of thrones took things from lord of the rings like, let's give credit where credit is due to Daddy Tolkien. I mean, if it wasn't to Daddy, you know, none of this shit would be possible. We always talk about Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, The Witcher. Sorry, but, you know, and, you know, I love those franchises, but there's a reason we give credit to where credit is due because Daddy is the grandfather of them all, and none of this would be happening if it wasn't for that man. And so, but point being is... You know, there's definitely major similarities. Like, I really think that scene was, I mean, honestly, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, dude, that was, like, identical. And I'll put that up on the social site so we can see. And I'll put it side by side. Um, I'll be interesting. You can check that out on our TikTok. I'll put it up on there for you, too. 
Uh, but that's, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, they were definitely pushing the boundaries there. But as far as, like, similarities, you know what's interesting is I see a lot of similarities in this show. We've talked about it a lot on this episode specifically now with Game of Thrones and Harry Potter. I mean, you could sit there and kind of, some of the mages kind of remind me of like Sirius Black a little bit. To say it kind of gives me more of like an Umbridge vibe from before, but now like a McGonagall. Um, but yeah, Game of Thrones as well. I mean, you know, it, it's even in Karth. I mean, one thing I would like to see a little bit more of The Witcher is, you know, Game of Thrones. We saw a lot more of like prophecies and stuff. You don't really see a lot of that in The Witcher, but yeah, yeah, go for it. Just to interject there, I, we got a lot of that in season one—the whole destiny thing, like who, like the person yeah. who's whose destiny. That was the prophecy sort of deal that we got on that end. And yeah, we can talk about the prophecies that were brought up in Game of Thrones, but half them fuckers weren't even ever answered by the end of the show. So what the <laughs> hell is even the point? Like, yeah, it was cool yeah. bring them up, but if you're not even gonna like, close off those circles, what, what the hell is the point? So yeah, I, I I would say that the prophecy thing. There's a few of them. Remember the the golden dragon from season one was his name, Bort's Jack Claw or something something along that line. Yeah, uh, he was telling them a little bit of a prophecy how they'll never be together. She'll never, uh, Yennefer will never have a kid. Uh, Jennifer and Geralt will never come together as a lasting whatever they are and then on top of that the whole destiny situation with the wedding and and all that and the gift that he was asking for because he didn't even want a gift and he threw out that fucking thing and then really ruined almost everything for Sintra but yeah dude so there's, there's a few things in there it's just I don't care too much that they didn't add a lot of prophecy because of the ones that we did other pieces of literature and works of of fantasy fiction that did have prophecies in them half of them were never fucking expanded upon or answered outside of the harry potter one with you know him in the in the hall of prophecies but yeah dude i don't know i'll let you continue on yeah and uh but i definitely think there's similarities i really think that i mean probably george r, r. martin in Probably not as much J.K. Rowling because she was kind of writing more like her more intention at first, I think, was Harry Potter was supposed to be for children. But even <clears throat> J.K. Rowling took a lot of things, which she's even said before, from, you know, Daddy Tolkien. So Game of Thrones, George R. R. Martin, you know, he's really involved in researching the fantasy realm. And with these out by Andre uh, Serpowski, I think is how I pronounce his last name. It's Polish. But I think he clearly did take some things from that. But it's definitely an interesting full circle as far as, like, now you have this show, and now they're kind of... It definitely seems like the writers... Like, I, I really truly wonder, like, how... Like, what they took <laughs> from the books versus, like what they really were taking from like watching game of thrones and harry potter and stuff and then trying to make it seem like they took that part of the books so that's very interesting another uh side note here about kind of like takeaways from the show i'll say is this kind of was like one of those full circle episodes like you know in the dance scene you had that dance scene where you know Geralt, you know got to see tris again and in season two 
Triss kind of took that role of Yin, why she went AWOL for a while. Let's go ahead and call spade a spade. Yin was not exactly the Yin we know right now last season. Like, she was figuring out what she was doing. She, she wasn't, you know, Geralt took her a long time to trust her. <laughs> we thought she was going bad shit for a while. Um, but Triss kind of really took that role model role for Siri and, and with Cirilla. And it was great seeing Istrid too in that way. But I think Triss doesn't give a, get enough credit for the role she took last season and how Siri's become who she is today. So that was a really cool full circle moment there. I do like that the episode... It, it was a lot more cleaner than the past couple episodes. I think the writing was pretty clean with where it was trying to go. Uh, it wasn't like super sloppy, I would say. But I thought the writing was pretty clean with where it was trying to go. But it was definitely a little bit slower. And you could tell it was building to this next episode. Um... But, I mean, there wasn't anything that really made me jump off the page. Like, wow, this is, like, the best episode ever or anything. But, I, I overall, I would probably give this episode a B plus. I didn't have any problems with it. I focused more... I mean, I think the monolith thing is interesting that they wanted to go this route. But it's not my place to judge what route you want to go with a show just because maybe I would have probably taken another route. It's my job to judge whether you did it, you know, seamlessly. And I didn't think they really had any problems. I mean, they got everyone where they wanted to be, you know, and you kind of are definitely, you know, we're definitely kind of all in here at this moment thinking, you know, all this stuff is going on with Stragabor and you have all the mages there. So, I thought it was a cool episode. I didn't have a problem with it. I gave it like a B plus. What'd you think? I thought it was overall a good episode. I will say that I think the buildup really set us up for the future of the show. If there is going to be a future of the show with a little bit of that plot twist where we're we're almost convinced that Stregobor is the end-all be-all bad guy and they almost had that build up from season one that we mentioned last week about Renfrey and how there was some similarities of him being the bad guy there and hiring Geralt to kill her when she had her side of the story almost painted Tregobor in a bad light and he had to make a decision Geralt did and ended up having to kill Renfrey because she was almost more dangerous to the continent as a whole he almost had to take a choice that he didn't want to make simply to help out people that will never really understand what he did and he's never really forgiven Stregobor for that and Stregobor even brings that up in this episode talking about Renfrey he's like I'm not the one who made you do that like I didn't I didn't put the dagger in her you did you know you didn't have to live with that choice and that's what Geralt says well you're gonna re you're gonna pay for everything you've ever done so and really did I will say the they did a really good job of leading us to the believe that Stregobor was the end all be all bad guy of this season, only to flip it at the last moment at the end of this episode 
to show us it was Vilgefortz all along setting Shregobor up, making it look like Shregobor was a bad guy, making himself look good, and having his own plans this whole time. And we're going to get more into that next week. But I do think they did a good job there. I, I thought that was a really good like timeline of events of, of, okay, we're following this along, we're thinking we're here, and then you flip it on us. That's a good plot twist. I think they did a great job with that. I, I give them credit for it. Now, where I think that some in, like some things could have been improved on this episode we're fo- we are following three different perspectives throughout and it was it was interesting we were following the i would say the viewer perspective from an outward angle kind of seeing everything that's going on then we followed Geralt's direct perspective and then at some points we would follow Yennefer's direct perspective so the only issue i had with that is it was the same exact thing but showing it in a couple different ways and it just seemed almost inefficient in a way i did like you know if you're going to do it i think doing it one way would be fine it's almost like they wanted to get back to the roots of what they did in season one of how we followed mm-hmm. siri across a certain timeline Geralt across a different timeline and yennefer off a, uh, a, a completely different timeline as well to have it all come together at the end and and Geralt and siri interact with each other for the first time at the very last episode of season one those were different timelines leading up to where we are in the present day and it's like they attempted to do that but on a less important scale because i don't i'm not necessarily convinced that they couldn't have come to this conclusion to me the ball was almost unnecessary I know because when I talk about unnecessary, it was necessary if Stregobor was the bad guy because they got the evidence they needed. They got the, all the mages to agree to to lock him up and hold him until the end of the conclave. To deal. So for what we were led to believe it was, I see what they were doing with it. But for the fact that they flipped it on us in the last moment, and it almost made the ball seem irrelevant because they just ended up in that room where you know I could have dealt with them just stumbling across that stuff in the room um, on, on the room. I didn't need to see three different perspectives of shit to get me to that that point. You know, I will say, yeah, maybe the conversation with Vilgefortz was important at the ball because he mentioned the whole, you know, you need to take a side in the battle as a come thing and trying to, you know, recruit Geralt to the, his side. And that was the first bits of, uh, you know, He's almost giving away his not giving away his plan, but at least alluding to the fact that he's more involved on other sides of stuff than you would initially think. You, you know, when you're listening to that with your mindset being that Stray War is a bad guy, those things might not stick out. But those those were his first kind of slip ups of, oh shoot, I'm kind of giving away my position here. But we don't realize it until they get to that room and they find his stuff. They're like the painting that we matches up with the portal, the type of art like uh, ammonite that's only found in Redania. And, and things like that so you know I, I get why it was necessary but I don't think I needed three perspectives to get me to that point and so I think that was just like a little bit of inefficiency on that end it was a well it was a well written episode overall and you know there was like you said it was more of a setup episode there wasn't a whole lot of action so if I'm gonna you know, like with these be my takeaways and giving it a rating on a scale of one to ten I'd probably give this episode like an 8.4 you know somewhere right in the middle maybe i guess that could be considered a solid b 84 of 100 is a solid b and it's a little bit under what what you gave it as but like i said i enjoyed it for what it was it wasn't a bad one and i think it was a really good lead up to next week's episode and 
those are my takeaways on that. Let's go ahead and dive into our debates for the day. I'll let you go ahead and kick us off with your debate. Yeah, um, my debate for the day is, do you think their plan from the beginning was to make, since we've already kind of revealed it here, make Vilgefortz the bad guy for this season? Or do you think they decided to cop out with it? Because we had this whole buildup with the race of Morag, and then now, uh, you know, I, I like the plot twist with Stregobor, and I, I think it's a very interesting take on to go with this because it all kind of does bring it all together. But it, I, my biggest problem with this season is consistency. And I think in order to be, you know, you can have a great show, but in order to really take it to that next level, like you're iconic, like your Harry Potter iconic, your Game of Thrones iconic, except for season eight, which is still iconic, just not in a good way. <laughs> but like, you know, in order to be franchise iconic is you have to have consistency and you can't be, you know, jumping all around in season three here. So my debate for you is, was the plan all along to make Vilgefortz the bad guy of season three? Or do you think they were just kind of riding it as they were going? It's funny because I have this sort of, not debate, but thoughts on something. And it, I guess I could almost call it a debate for next week, and I'm going to save it for next week. And what I'll, I'll give a quick allusion to it without giving it away. But we've seen certain characters interact with each other in a completely different way in season one versus where we are in season three when I'm talking about battles. And I'm going to specifically mention the Battle of Sodden. There were two characters that uh, were ferociously locked in a, uh, a battle engagement, and I'm not going to give away who those are, but it makes me wonder, and I don't know if it's a plot hole or we're just supposed to accept that maybe thoughts and minds have changed over time. In any event, I, I would say... I don't. Without reading the novels or playing the game, I don't know if Vilgefortz is considered a villain or a good guy uh, on those fronts. So if I had read those or played those, I might have a better idea of how to answer this. Because if those were in there, and if it was this, this is this whole time, right. then yeah, it was their their the whole objective was to write him into being a bad guy, and they did a pretty good job of it. I just don't know if it's the plan because I don't know what the, you know. As, as far as I know, Geralt or Henry Cavill, who's playing the role of Geralt, was pretty much on board with season three because it still followed a lot of what the the source material kind of depicted. And if that's the case, then yeah, it would be their plan the whole time since it was in what they were trying to cover. But if it wasn't, and this is something that they threw together on their own, I still kind of like it. It's not. It's, some, it's definitely something I didn't anticipate right off the rip. Uh, it's just I don't know how you. It's, it's tough to answer it with with not being able to get into some shit from next week. But yeah, I think it just depends on in the source material who Vilgefortz was and 
what whose allegiance he ended up ultimately serving in those to give me a better way to answer your question if, if I think they just threw this together and wrote this in or if it was the plan the whole time. So it's, it's kind of a, uh, a no answer because I just don't know. I have no clue. But if it was something that they read in and it was not in the source material, I actually kind of like it. Small difference there. They could go in a whole different direction. And if it's something that they had to do because of the upcoming, you know, we always mention it a little bit, the whole deal with Henry Cavill not re-signing with The Witcher and him going a separate way for next season if they end up having the next season. This is a good way to keep people at least interested in wondering where it's going to go because you were led up to believe one thing this whole time and then they switch it pretty late into the season now you're kind of invested and you want to know where this ends up so it would be a good play by the writers if this was their own way to kind of keep people engaged for future seasons knowing that you're going to lose your star guy but it's also very possible that it was written like that in the source material and they're just you know, putting that on screen. So that's those are my that's my best way I can answer that from my end. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, in the same way. I mean, I haven't really dove too much into the books. So I glanced at them here and there. <laughs> Shout out to Wedding Crashers. <laughs> but <laughs> but no, I haven't really. It's definitely not my Harry Potter, as you know. <laughs> so that I could literally quote you pages out of the book just because. But <laughs> point being is is my thoughts are i mean i like the switch up i i truly do i think it's a really cool villain we have going on but like why bring up stuff like the race of morog even like last season like why even do that unless it's like kind of one of those things i feel like the race of morog are gonna wind up becoming like how the night king became like a subplot and we thought it was like the big plot do you think that's so what i would say is I don't think it was like bad that they did that. I thought it was a cool change up and it really kept me interested. I just thought it was sloppy. I thought you were kind of, you know, we couldn't make, if I'm the writers and I'm looking from an outside perspective, it looks like they couldn't make up their mind with what they wanted to do. Like they started lasting and they're like, Oh, this would be fucking awesome to get some race of Morag in there. And it's like, then season three, they're like, okay, well, we really don't have enough time to build that up, so we'll we'll answer that later on in other seasons, but we still want to reference it to give the audience some reference, so let's just throw it in an episode here where they show up in the middle of the fucking field, <laughs> like series running for your life. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't even bring this question up if we didn't see them all this season because I'd be like, oh, well, something, maybe they're going to save that for later. Maybe that's something that just didn't pan out. I'll be fine with that. I'll let it slide, you know, because I can let things slide. But, like, dude, you threw them in the season you wrote. Like, it's not like, it's not like this is unrelated at this point. Like, literally, we had an episode where, like, the end of the fucking episode, they show up in a field, and now we have this whole other thing going on. So... My argument is, uh, my perspective is, I like it. I like that he's the bad guy for this season, but I do not think he was originally planned as this bad guy, obviously, because they've been teasing this race of Morag thing the whole time. And why the fuck, if he's like the original, if he's the, I think 
He's like a guy that they were like, you know what, fuck. We don't have enough time to do all this shit. So we're going to have him, and then we're going to push this off to like later seasons, but we still want to make a nod to the audience. So we got to have this one badass villain, which is, is really cool. Don't get me wrong. I like it, and I like the switch up. But I think they like kind of like stepped back, and they were like, fuck, we fucked ourselves because we don't have enough time with this. But then it was really fucking sloppy. Like, all of a sudden, you know, we're jumping from one side of the map with Silent Hill villains, and then the other side of the map with Race of Morag, and now we got Dangerous Mages. We got, like, the Voldemort of Mages over in Eratusa. So I thought it was really sloppily done. What's your debate for the day, Janelle? I want to answer my, give my thoughts on yeah. what you said yeah, there because I just I disagree like a lot honestly on a lot of what you said because I don't think that it has anything to do with the overall um, villains of the show I, I think that this was supposed to be for season three the the shock and surprise the shock and awe factor a lot of times in season three it seems to kind of give you a quick little plot twist in a lot of these fantasy shows you know for example the red wedding in season three of Game of Thrones kind of threw us off but point being is it's not just Bilgeforce, it's not just the Wraiths of Morag, we still have fucking Amir over there in Nilfgaard, who's a big bad villain that we've got to deal with at some point too. So I don't think they're just like throwing shit together, I think they have a, a plan, and I think they have to get, uh, you know, all of these things addressed eventually. It's just, I, I, I'm more so concerned with, I don't know if the, who, who's Vilgefortz's character is in the source material, I don't know what that role is there. So, you know, like I said, if it's something that came up on their own, I think it's almost low-key genius. But if it's something that they, you know, just copied and just put it on screen from the source material, then that is what it is. But I don't think that this is not. I don't think season three is supposed to have the Wraiths and Morag as the um, big bad villain. Because at the end of the day, if we want to compare it to these other fantasy series or shows, and it's tough to do with movies because movies kind of run in a different timeline you kind of have everything compressed like over years in one two hour segment or whatever but what i'm saying here is that you can have multiple subplots that also lead into a bigger thing at the very end because it's not like the night king just made an appearance in season one and we just never heard about it again until the final battle in in season eight you know we got little things here and there of it yes i also do not like the way that they were brought in and i made that very clear when we were going through (laughs) that silly chase down of siri and how that made no sense and kind of made them look like little bitches because all together there was a little push magic and they just fled the scene i thought that made them really like that kind of really downplayed their their tenacity and their abilities i thought that was a mistake on their part but I don't mind them throwing the Wraiths Morag in little by little, but I would just want them to be impactful moments of like, shit, they just took out this person and they disappeared. Where are they going to come up again? Like, you just, I want to be able to be kept, like, knowing that they're still ba- out there in the back of my mind and showing up at crazy times and doing some crazy shit. That would be the way to do it until we finally get this final battle towards the end of the series with them. So I don't mind that, that they're being brought in. I, and I don't think that they're going to, I mean, I'm hopeful that they're going to learn from other, you know, mistakes that were made in the fantasy world by, you know, other works. But I've got no problem with them having multiple villains and having to figure out along the way, like how to overcome little at a time. Cause we, we've had that, we've had that. And it's almost the standard to have villains on multiple fronts and kind of taken a step-by-step approach you know and and going through it so 
if Ilgoforts is this bad guy here and he's joining up with Amir, well, now you've got, you know, the, one of the most powerful mages with access to the ability of time travel with him. And then on top of that, you got you know, like Amir over there in Nilfgaard. He's got some sort of, outside of just being really skilled with a weapon, uh, being a sword or whatever he's using, he's also a leader and also has, I don't know if he has any sort of magical abilities or not. We haven't touched too much on him. And that's another person. That's the main thing like, I'm concerned about is we have not gotten a big backstory on Emir or Dooney or the White Flame, whatever you want to call this motherfucker. So, you know, we've got plenty of villains that we've got to address along the way. And I don't think that they, like, messed up by by mentioning the race and Morag or having them show up in this season and have them go away. I think that's smart. I just don't think the way they did it was smart. I think they definitely should have had them pop in, kill someone big who we weren't expecting and then pop the fuck out like shit don't forget these guys are the real bad guys of the whole series while we're dealing with the current bad guys that would be the way to do it in my opinion but i don't i don't necessarily agree that they're just like pulling shit out of their ass and thinking oh well we don't have enough time so we got to write in new villains to, to speed this up i don't think that's the case uh that, those are just my thoughts on it before i get into my debate did you want to respond to that before i, I dive into mine yeah, I mean, I see where you're coming from. I just think if, I mean, I can see what you're saying. I just think it's, if that's the case and this was the plan, you can come up with better ways to do things. Like, it was very sloppy, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I didn't like the way that they were brought into it this season. Like I said, we've, we've, we've beat that to death a couple episodes yeah. ago, you know. But <laughs> at the end of the day, I don't hate that they made an appearance. I'm glad they made an appearance. Keep them in our minds. I'm just saying, if you're going to do that, like you said, do it in a better way. And my idea of a better way is let's come in, cause some real fucking havoc and destruction when you think things are going well, and then have them bounce, and you'd be like, shit, we still got to worry about them, motherfuckers. That's the way to do it. Um, but yeah. You know, my debate for the day, it's going to be around our boy Dijkstra. Like, what the fuck is, is up with this guy, man? Because obviously <laughs> he was integral in certain parts of the plan. He's the one that has kind of put a lot of stuff together. But at the end of the day, is he just someone who has power based on his ranking? Or is he actually someone that you got to worry about as a mastermind, uh, someone who is hard to take down... And I know some of it's going to be difficult to talk about with what happens next episode. So do what you can with this. But really, like, what is the role of Dijkstra? How big of a role do you see him playing? And, and is he a key character? Or is he someone that just seemed more important than he really ended up being? He is the Nagini of the Witcher. He is a fucking snake. <laughs> That's exactly what he is, man. I think I see him as this. I mean, keep in mind, we don't really know a lot about Dijkstra's backstory, but we have that little comment. I mean, he doesn't really, from what I know, from my knowledge, he doesn't really have any magical talent or... I mean, I don't want to get into this next episode, but he clearly doesn't have very good... I, from what I've seen, he hasn't doesn't have very good combat skill either, and I I really wonder even like his military ability. Like we just talked about Amir the White Flame. I mean, at least on his end, no magical ability, but you can tell all these people respect him, and his name goes throughout the community. So he can definitely lead a group and an army and carries a name for himself. No one's fucking talking about Dijkstra. 
When you see all these other people but talking, dude, no one's like, that's the crazy thing, oh, though, yeah. is everyone's talking about Deke Schrader. I don't know why. That's my point. It's like, <laughs> yeah. dude, like, like his, well, I mean, his not name necessarily is like, in a positive like way. Like, his name's out there, and people, like, ha- he, they have some sort of respect behind his name and some sort of fear behind his name. But, like, I don't know why. No, you know, he, like I said, I, they just almost made him seem more menacing and more capable than he really ended up being or at least to this point what he ended up being because i remember going out throughout the uh all of season two and also here in season three multiple points in time where he his name is brought up as uh, a key contributor in a lot of stuff and people you know he even orchestrated the death of uh, vizimir's wife and uh, you know yeah. and so but then you know, we get into the actual nitty gritty, and when you have to get your hands dirty, and then we'll talk about them more next week. But like, what is this guy's real worth? Is it just the is it just the knowledge and stuff that he has, or like the the, the capability of getting information from people? I don't know. That's kind of like where I was going with it. What, what do you think about that kind of stuff? Bro, the guy's a fucking Peter Baelish is the only thing I can come up with. I thought he was going to be kind of like our Vilgefortz, honestly, with the way we kind of hear him in passing. And, you know, he's kind of coming up with these plans with Philippa. kind of reminds me of, you know, I can't remember her name. I always call her like the White Worm is what they call her in House of the Dragon. You know, uh, Damon's girl that kind of went rogue. I mean, it's kind of like that. Like, he kind of has, like, blackmail on people. So he's got, like, that Peter Baelish style. But, like, he's that Varys. He has connections, right? So I kind of see him as, like, that. But, like, when it comes down to it, you know, we said it a couple episodes ago. Our own Jay Nelly, you know. uh, And I won't get into next episode. But one thing about Geralt is yeah he has no emotions but when it comes down to it man motherfucker will run through a brick wall if he fucking has to I feel like if you put Dijkstra in a room he's just gonna be like well fuck man fuck <laughs> like he's he's a lot of talk and then nothing that backs that shit up like he's all talk and all bite no bark man or all bark and, bark and no bite is that what they say about dogs yeah, yeah. all bark and <laughs> yeah, no bite that's right. All bite, no bark. That's Gerald, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, man, like he's just one of those guys. I just think he's a fucking snake, honestly. And I wish I could say that better. I wish I could speak more highly of the guy. I really do. There was a time in season two, you know, where we saw the owl and we saw he had like his own plans. He was coming up in the corner of his like whatever you call it his like little tower there he had like rapunzel's tower and he was coming up with all these plans i was like oh man this guy's really gonna pose a real threat when it comes down to it guy's just the bitch snake (laughs) like that's what he is man and that's the way i see him i no longer take this guy as a threat i think he would really try to fuck some people over i think you can't trust him as far as you can see him he is definitely no loyal dog. <laughs> he is a fucking snake that likes to sit in the sun and take all the credit when credit is due. And that's my opinion. What's your thoughts, Jay Nelly? I think that he's a lot less menacing now than I thought before because I guess it never really was specified what his role was. You know, obviously he was an advisor to King Vizimir in Redania or is an advisor to King Vizimir in Redania, 
But my thing is that I he has to have some sort of power outside of an actual regular commoner, or else he wouldn't be able to communicate with his owl that you're talking about. And the owl comes into play next week. I'm not giving a whole lot of weight by saying that, but. So there's still something more to this guy than just being a regular human. You know, it's like he's definitely more more than Yaskier, so to speak. You know what I mean? In terms of what he can do outside of normal human limitations. But I don't know what that is. You know, what else can he do? Does he only have the ability to communicate with animals? Is that the only thing that he's got? And, on, and then the rest is just, the, you know, him being a spy master and gaining information and using that information to push their agenda further because he can maneuver and outmaneuver different people throughout the continent i don't know but to your point he's a lot less menacing than i thought because i thought he was gonna be one of them shadow guys that out of nowhere ends up making a push to be one of the you know major players in this whole the role of stuff but when i found out and he said hey you're the only other fellow commoner here to Geralt," and realizing that he doesn't have any magical powers I'm like, well, shit. Then what can what can you do? Also, you know, like, yeah, yeah, your your information is valuable and it can be helpful in in all that. And yeah, Philippa can take your back, have your back on the magical side of stuff. But in my mind, when I was seeing this guy, I thought he was going to be a force in his own right. I thought maybe he, I even had like, some thoughts that he might even just branch out and do his own thing and be like, ah, fuck all y'all, you know, I'm not on anyone's side, I'm on my own side, I'm going to start running shit. I thought that was a possibility, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, this guy, just, and then, you know, again, like you said, we don't want to talk too much about next week, but even this week, to find out that he's got no magical powers, you know, <laughs> I, like, is there a chance that he was lying and he's like just trying to goad people into thinking that he's not a threat and maybe he does have some stuff he's saving for later and he just is okay with playing possum so to speak you know he's okay with making himself look weak and not strong and then later on he's gonna really attack with his real force or is this motherfucker just really not like capable I don't know dude it's just it's hard to say because I even wrote down in my in my notes here when I was going through the Deeksha part when he admitted well not admitted but it came out publicly that he doesn't have magic or he can't use magic i'm like is he lying is he just lying to you know kind of give people a false sense of security that's like that's one of the things that could be the keep him in the running for a dangerous character to keep an eye out for but if that's not the case and he's just someone that can provide high level information that's useful for you to use tactically and strategically well, number one, going to next week, he sucks at that too. <laughs> but that, 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 that's a dude. I'll tell you what, man. In this episode and next episode, I really lost a lot of respect for Deekstra and his abilities. <laughs> and that's just kind of where I'll, I'll leave that at for my debate here. Is that, man, like, I, I still don't know what he is capable of overall. I don't know if he's lying and he can use magic. But if he can't, and we're using the assumption that he can't based on what we heard here in this episode... That's the case. I think Deixra is a is a huge letdown of a character of someone who I really thought could be a major player in this universe. So that's what I'll say about that. Did you have anything you want to add to it before we close up? Yeah, I want to add to that because I just imagine. Okay, and this would be a really cool rankings. Like you know, we always do our rankings after big arcs. Uh, like most powerful characters, I imagine like in like a room, if you put like Yennefer, Tissaia, Geralt, you know, Vilgefords, all these guys in the room and then Deke's just there, they're like, what's your power? They're like, ah, oh, you know, 
I can use fire magic, like, you know, like, don't want to give anything away, but, or I can use, you know, I can do this other magic. I get, you know, I can drink potions and take down monsters. You get to Deekstra, and he's like, I talk to animals. And they're like, oh, that's really retro. <laughs> that's, like, really retro, man. Like, I got, oh. <laughs> to take that, great, like, to take that even just one step further, if you bring all these people into one room and you say, okay, the, like only one of you is going to survive, only one of you is walking out of this room, you put them all together, he's not the one walking out that room. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, like, like if yeah. you're in that room and you're like, he's probably the first one dead, honestly. Like, he's probably the first one to die. Like, if you bring, like, uh, we talk about it, let's just say, you bring Yennefer, Siri, Geralt, Vilgefortz, Amir, uh, Kahir, uh, you know, if you, like, all the major players in one room and only one is going to survive and exit that room alive it ain't going to be Deekstra <laughs> that's, what I'll, that's what I'll say man and what's crazy is at one point throughout the season I was like maybe he would be the one to leave the room maybe he's like a little bit but I think we really got duped on this guy bro like, that's what I'll say on that but I'll, I'll let you kind of finish up what you were saying yeah man I mean even Francesca you know we left her out of it but like yeah, I mean, even Gallant that's not here anymore, he would have whooped his ass. Like, dude, like, it's just, I mean, I will say this. Like, maybe he was lying. Like, wow, that would be one hell of a flip the switch. Like, you wait till the end of the series, all of a sudden this guy's been, like, just playing like he's a bitch the whole time. And really, he he's the one doing all these things. Maybe he's the one conjuring these monsters. Maybe he's the one that has all this magic that they can't be. Maybe he's in charge of the race of Morag. I would probably fucking laugh at that point. I'd be like, wow, like this guy, I, I, I would be, I would actually laugh because I would like, wow, this is who they decide to make that. But it would be one hell of a plot twist. But yeah, man, that, that's, uh, I don't know, I, I just, what's funny is what we are just saying, it's all very foreshadowing, you know, put them all in a room, right? All very foreshadowing to next week, <laughs> so it's, but yeah, man, it, talk about a real fall from grace, that guy. It's like the guy that's like the major headliner of a band, and then all of a sudden, it's like, wow, you can't sell tickets anymore. <laughs> like, you're going to have to play at the local bar, bro. <laughs> it's just, the way I see him, man, he's a Peter, as of right now, he's just a Peter Baelish, thinks he's got some shit on some folks. But when it comes down to it, you know, he can get that that ass spanked. That's <laughs> what it comes down to. Yeah, man, I'll let you close this out, brother. For sure, I'm going to close out in just a second, but it reminds me, because you keep calling him, uh, you're referring and comparing him to Peter Baelish, it reminds me of that interaction that Peter Baelish had in the early seasons of Game of Thrones with Cersei when he almost alludes to the fact that he knows about uh, her and Jamie, talking about Cersei and Jamie. And he said, knowledge is power. And then Cersei puts him in his place. She's like, guards, cut his throat. Oh, just kidding. See, no. Pow <laughs> power is power, motherfucker, not knowledge. So it's just, it's just really funny. It reminds me a lot of that. It's like, you know, Peter Bear thought he was slick and thought the knowledge is power. And he's like, has a lot over her. And she's like, dude, I could have you killed right here. Like, you know, no one knows. All these guards, like, take a step back. Three steps forward. Cut his throat. You know what? I changed my mind. Never mind. Like, you know, it's like, it was just one of those things where it's like, yeah. I think, uh, I think we're about to see... Uh, Dijkstra understand that he is not who he thought he was here pretty soon in the next coming week there. 
And to close us out for the day, if this is your first time listening to us, we really hope you enjoyed what you heard and you come back for more. If you've been here from the very beginning, thank you for continuously being the shields that guard the realms of fantasy. In terms of where you can find us on all of our sites socially, we are on Instagram at official ridiculous patronus. We are on TikTok at ridiculous patronus. Backup Instagram at fact underscore or underscore fantasy. Backup TikTok at fact underscore or underscore fantasy. We have our Facebook fan page, Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. We have our own site, ridiculouspatronus.blogspot.com. We also are on Twitter, RP Factor Fantasy. We're on Snapchat, RP Factor Fantasy. So please go give us a follow, subscribe, like, comment, review stuff on our end. Leave us uh, whatever like star ratings you agree with. Leave us written comments, written reviews. It really helps us here at the show with all the engagement that we get from everyone that listens to us. In terms of where you can find us podcast-wise, we are, uh, if you're an Apple user, we're on Apple Podcasts. If you're an Android user, we're on Google Play. We're on Spotify. We're on iHeartRadio. We're on Amazon Music. We're on Audible. We're on Stitcher, Acast, our host site, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase and Josh, Factor Fantasy are there. We are out for the day because this has been another ridiculous production chase and josh factor fantasy signing Signing off. off